Hello, I'm Matt, and welcome to a very special episode of Ghostthropology. Hi, I'm Kalia. Welcome to a very special episode of Pages and Popcorn Podcast. Yes, for Halloween we're bringing you the most frightening of things, a cross-posted episode. Why, you may ask? Well... In each episode of Ghostthropology, I talk about a ghost story, a folk legend, or some sort of tale of the weird, all of them unverifiable, but claimed to be real. Then I analyze it by discussing the elements of the story that I find make it interesting. I talk about why the story works and what makes it linger in our minds. For Halloween, I wanted to discuss the Amityville Horror Story. And as you may or may not know, in each episode of Pages and Popcorn Podcast, I, along with my co-host, talk about a movie that's based on a book as well as the original source material. I talk about the themes, the differences that come with adaptations, and we try to determine which version is most worth your time. Maybe both? Maybe neither. For Halloween, I also wanted to do, well, that story. So... Look, we have identified overlap. Both of our podcasts are part of the KMMA Media Podcast Network, and we simply couldn't let the opportunity to go by without working together, because working together is fun. Plus, since we're married and, you know, cohabitating, we can record within arm's reach, share a mic, and hopefully make our editor's job a lot easier. Yeah, and we definitely want to keep her happy. Oh, she's crabby when she gets, you know, grumpy. So true. So the format will be a bit different, but we think you'll enjoy what we have planned. As always, in my episodes anyways, two warnings. First off, this episode tonight might contain more barnyard language than your typical ghostropology episode. And oh yes, spoilers for the book and movie and the real story behind them. Before we start, I want to let you know that today's format's going to be a bit different than what you normally expect from either of our shows. Normally, I do a recap of the book, a recap of the movie, and then have a conversation with my co-host about the two. And normally, I tell a ghost story or a bit of folk legend and then follow that up with my commentary, and I'm usually flying solo. Today, we will recap the book together with Matthew doing the ghost story bit, and I will do the other parts of the book, what there are. Then I'll recap up the movie, and then we'll talk about how these things fit together in terms of adaptation, with special attention by Matthew, to why this storybook movie was so important and why it is part of our modern mythology. At least that's the plan. Sometimes these things have a mind of their own. So, for realties, before we start, I cannot say the name of this book or movie. I have tried. For the last two weeks as we've been working on this, I have called it everything in the world you can possibly think of except what it's called because for some reason my brain sees the M and the I and the T and the Y and it just doesn't understand how to formulate that into the proper sounds. So I'm going to try. I'm going to fail. I'm just, I'm going to see if I can go this whole podcast without saying that word again. <laughs> so this is a book. <laughs> it was written by Jay Anson. It was published in 1977. It's the basis of a series of films released from 1979 onwards. The book is claimed to be based on the paranormal experiences of the Lutz family, but has led to controversy and lawsuits over its truthfulness. We will talk about its truthiness in a bit. Since the book is based on a ghost story, Matthew is going to tell us the ghost story, and then I'm going to recap the book so that you can hear the difference. Give me a moment to get my ghostthropology voice ready. Because the story of the house on Ocean Avenue in Amityville has been part of the pop culture zeitgeist for more than 40 years, 
There are a lot of stories pertaining to what allegedly happened there. The version I give here comes from the book The Amityville Horror by Jay Anson, which is what brought the story to public attention. It should be noted, though, that many claim the book to be an exaggeration or perversion of the stories that the Lutz family actually told. Nonetheless, it is the version that is most readily accessible, the one that is part of the public consciousness, and so it is the version that I work from here. We could start the story of the Amityville haunting at a number of different points in time, but I will start at an undefined point prior to the entry of European settlers to the area. According to the book, the darkness that would engulf this house began early, and the local Shinnecock used the area as a place to put the ill and the insane, but they would not bury their dead there, as the place was thought to be a haven for evil spirits. Later, in the 17th century, an alleged sorcerer named John Ketchum, who may have been chased out of Salem for practicing witchcraft, is said to have come to what would eventually be Amityville and begun engaging in occult rituals with the intention of raising demons to do his bidding. It is hinted that these stories involved human sacrifice, and that the bodies of his victims are buried on the property where the famous Amityville house now stands. And of course, there is the one element of the story that can be clearly confirmed by official paperwork. In the mid-1970s, Ronald DeFeo murdered his parents and siblings, supposedly at 3.15 a.m. His motives appear to be financial, though it has been claimed that he suffered at the time from a mental illness. And there are those who believe that he was driven to commit the crimes by voices that he heard in the house. In December of 1975, George and Kathy Lutz, along with their three children from Kathy's first marriage, moved into the house. At first, this seemed to be their dream house, but things quickly became grim and frightening. Shortly after moving in, both George and Kathy found themselves becoming short-tempered and grumpy, snapping at each other and at the children. George seemed to get the worst of it at first, feeling constantly cold, and insisting on having a roaring fire going at all times, no matter the actual ambient temperature of the house. George refused to go to work for many days, only grudgingly spoke to his family, and gave up bathing. He also began to wake up at 3.15 a.m. every day, at first thinking that he saw or heard something out at the boathouse on the property, and then later noticing that strange events seemed to be occurring in the house at that time. After a while, George was forced to occasionally leave the house, and when he did, he found that his mood and his ability to function improved. But as soon as he was back in the house, everything would again go downhill. Like George, Kathy also had heightened moodiness, though less severely than George. She also experienced other strange events. She would often smell a cheap perfume that was then accompanied by a sensation of physical touch. At first, it seemed reassuring, like a warm hug. But over time, it became unnerving, often being nothing short of physical assault by unseen forces. Eventually, Kathy began to experience changes to her body that were horrifying. Scars appeared and vanished. She found herself covered in boils that burnt the fingers of anyone who touched them. And at one point, she briefly aged by decades, only for her body to return to its normal age a short time later. Kathy also had dreams in which she was Mrs. DeFeo and was having sex with a man who was not her husband. That is, not Mrs. DeFeo's husband. At one point, she wakes up at 3.15 a.m. screaming, She was shot in the head! Their daughter, Missy, also appeared to become the focus of something. The rocking chair in her room often rocked despite being empty, and she began to speak of an imaginary friend named Jody, who she described as an angel that looked like a giant pig. Early Christmas morning, at 3.15, while George was outdoors checking the boathouse, he turns back to the house to see Missy staring at him through the window, and a giant pig with glowing red eyes standing behind her, also staring down at him. As the weirdness of the house increased, 
Jody's appearances became more frequent and much more disturbing. With Kathy observing glowing red eyes outside of Missy's second-story bedroom on at least two occasions. The morning following one of those occasions, the prints of pig hooves were found in the snow. A sick-looking young boy appeared in Missy's room one night while visitors were using her bed, and Missy at one point told her mother that Jody will make it so that Missy can live in the house forever to play with the little boy who got sick and died. The house also seemed to have a strange effect on others. Father Mancuso, a priest and friend of the family, came by on the first day to bless the house, and heard a voice telling him to get out. After he left, he had a series of misfortunes involving a dangerous automobile accident. He also had difficulty speaking with the Lutzes as phone static routinely interrupted conversations, and every time he attempted to go to the house, he was thwarted by an illness that had developed immediately after he had tried to bless the house. But that would come and go in severity, depending on whether he was attempting to reach out to the Lutz family. In late December, a strange man appeared at the door one day, and told Kathy that people wanted to come and visit. Kathy, assuming that he meant the neighbors, told him that they would be welcome. The man left rather abruptly. That night, when George woke at 3.15 a.m., he discovered that the front door of the house had been forced open and was hanging from one hinge. As time went on, other doors and windows would be forced from their hinges or out of their frames, resulting in considerable damage. At one point, George and Kathy found a small room, painted entirely red, hidden behind a movable panel in the basement closet. While talking to a local barkeep, George is told of rumors that Ronald DeFeo, the murderer who killed his family, used the room to kill dogs and pigs in order to use their blood in rituals. George also sees an apparition of Ronald DeFeo in the closet. One night, the strong smell of feces begins emanating from this room, and that same night, Father Mancuso's apartment is filled with the same smell. From there, there is simply a list of oddities that occurred at the house. The sewing room is often cold. A crucifix placed in the closet is turned upside down. Flies keep appearing and swarming in the room despite this being the wrong time of year for flies. Windows and doors begin to open and shut on their own. A ceramic statue of a lion appears to move on its own, and at one point trips George, who later has teeth marks on his leg. A demonic figure is visible in the fire on New Year's Eve and etches itself into the suit in the back of the fireplace. The family awakens to find their bedclothes have been taken and the windows open to the deadly cold. The sound of an invisible marching band begins to occur at 3.15 a.m. for several days running. Kathy begins to levitate, always in her sleep when that happens. The furniture is moved in the night when everyone is asleep. A large amount of money goes missing from a visitor's pocket, and the toilets fill with a foul-smelling black liquid that's almost impossible to clean. The girlfriend of one of George's employees claims to be a psychic medium, and she tells the family that there are a number of spirits in the house, some evil, some simply present. She also tells George to look for a disused well with a cracked cap, as the spirits may be coming in from there. She was unaware that George had found just such a well a day earlier. Initially, the Lutzes are reluctant to leave the house. Something always occurs to keep them inside. For instance, freak violent storms appear and force them back into the house when they try to leave. At one point, the car has mechanical problems and won't start. On some occasions, illness prevents them from even trying to leave. And at other times, their mood swings seem to push them to stay against all common sense. The Lutzes try to exercise the house themselves, as the church is unwilling to step in. And this appears to push things to the breaking point. A green slime begins to ooze from the walls and a lock hole, and, bizarrely, George decides to taste it at one point. One of the boys is injured when a window suddenly slams shut and pins his hand, but there's no permanent damage done to the hand as a result. Members of the family begin to see a hooded figure with only half of a face as if damaged by a shotgun blast. George has visions of a shadowy figure going to the boys' room and enveloping them. 
And then the temperatures in the house begin to swing from suffocatingly hot to freezing. On the final night, George hears the boys' beds moving in the room above his. Then he hears voices downstairs followed by the sound of the marching band. The doors in the house all begin to open and shut on their own. George feels a hooved animal that he cannot see climb on top of him and begin trampling him, and he passes out. He comes to when the boys are in the room, telling him that a monster is in their bedroom. The family runs for the door, and they see the hooded figure in the hall, pointing at them. They get in their van and leave, never to return again. A few days later, George and Kathy are staying at Kathy's mother's house, and they begin to levitate and realize that the spirits of the Amityville house have followed them. Jay Anson reports, however, that the family moved to California and that these events stopped, which he attributed to moving across numerous rivers because, according to a lot of folklore, water can act as barriers to supernatural forces. So, Kalia, would you like to summarize the book? Sure. I guess I should probably say more than basically everything that you just said happens in the book, except I think that he uses fewer adjectives. Ahem, here we go. November 13th, 1974. Ronald DeFeo Jr. shoots and kills six members of his family at 112 Ocean Avenue, a large Dutch colonial house situated in a suburban neighborhood on the south shore of Long Island, New York. He was convicted of second-degree murder in November 1975. In December 1975, George and Kathy Letts and their three children move into the house. After 28 days, the Letts leave the house claiming to have been terrorized by paranormal phenomena while living there. In December 1975, George and Kathleen Lutz buy the house for what was considered to be a bargain price of $80,000. The idea was that George would work there, and the new blended family would live there all together to save money. The five-bedroom house had a distinctive gambrel roof. It also had a swimming pool and a boathouse. It was right next to the river. It wasn't cheap. Kathy has three children from a previous marriage, Daniel 9, Christopher 7, and Melissa, a.k.a. Missy, who is five. There's also a dog named Harry. During their first inspection of the house, the real estate broker tells them about the DeFeo murders and asks if this will affect their decision. After discussing the matter, they decide it's not a problem. The Lutz family moved in on December 19, 1975. Much of the DeFeo's family furniture was still in the house because it was included for $400 as part of the deal. A friend of George Lutz learned about the history of the house and insisted on having it blessed. At the time, George was a non-practicing Methodist and had no experience of what this would entail, Kathy's a non-practicing Catholic and felt like it was a good idea. Father Mancuso arrived to perform the blessing while George and Kathy were unpacking and went into the building to carry out the rites. When he flicked the first bit of holy water and began to pray, he heard a masculine voice demand that he get out. He also got creepy feelings while he did the blessing. He said nothing and left, but got into a car accident on his way home when his car started acting all crazy. Eventually, he also got the flu, a high fever, blistered hands, and he and George were hardly ever able to communicate via the phone because of lots of mysterious static. We will leave him for now and continue on with George and Kathy. What happens in the family in the house is a lot. There are doors that won't stay shut. There are windows and doors that are broken. George can't get warm even next to a roaring fire. The little girl talks to angels and has a new friend that looks like a man-sized pig with red eyes. There's a creepy little hidden room in the basement. There are sounds and feelings of presences. The dog sleeps, like, all the time. The boathouse feels weird. Things move when no one's looking. Bad smells show up. The toilets get stained black. Green ooze shows up randomly. There's a loud marching band with no explanation. There are voices. There are shadows. There are ghostly figures. At one point, they can't leave because the car won't stop, but then later they can. A kid's hand gets smashed in a window, but then it's okay. There are some gross body markings that fade. There are burns that don't burn. There are bodies that levitate. There's a bunch of money that goes missing. 
Everyone's on edge. The parents fight. The mom's afraid of the kitchen. The dad won't shower or go to work and can't sleep. And the kids are awful. Maybe the little girl has a rocking chair that moves on its own and seems pretty chill about playing with an invisible friend. And there's a bunch of random flags. Sometimes a stone lion moves and bares its teeth and bites someone. Maybe no one really talks to one another. And even though this is all happening and the phone only works sometimes, no one really wants to leave. And oh, the parents beat the kids, which the book says in such a way as to make it both symptom of things like being very, very wrong and also all blasé, like it's a pretty normal thing. Again, lots of things happen. And they mostly happen without the benefit of any adjectives. I'll save my actual review, but I can't not mention that. Anyway, eventually they decide that it's just too much and they do try to leave the house. They take the kids and the dog, of course, believe all their stuff. The priests had tried to get to the house examined by other priests, but they didn't seem overly interested in the idea of demons, etc. So yeah, uh, that was a non-starter. Some sciency people come out later, and boy do they have a story to share. The house, they say, was built on a native burial ground. It's been a site of many satanic rituals. There are multiple ghosts hanging round. No, yeah, the DeFeo murders were probably related. The end. So that's the book. <laughs> yep. And then they made a movie. The movie came out in 1979. Directed by Stuart Rosenberg. Starred James Brolin. Margaret Kidder. Young couple. Purchase a house. Haunted by combative supernatural forces. Here we go. In the early morning hours on November 13, 1974, Ronald DeFeo Jr. murders his entire family with a shotgun in their home in New York. One year later, George and Kathy Letts, a young married couple, check out the house. They are blending families, you see, and they want a fresh start. They get a tour from the realtor, and the tour is intercut with scenes from the murders. They love the house and are excited to move in with their three children. A month later, they're busy moving in and unpacking. There are a few odd moments, but so far so good. Everyone seems happy. While they're outside playing, the priest shows up to bless the house. And even though no one answers the door or lets him in, he just waltzes right in, heads upstairs, and starts his ritual. He's interrupted by a bunch of creepy flies, like tons of creepy flies, and he also hears some weird voice telling him to get out. Eventually, he's overcome and can't continue. He flees the house, leaving his hat that no one ever finds or remarks upon. He tries to drive away. He's violently ill. The family never even knew he was there in the house in the first place. Back at home, he tries to call Kathy, but the line is all static and his hands are suddenly covered in blisters. Back at the house, the family is settling in. George can't sleep. The boathouse is creepy. The little girl has an imaginary friend and there are strange breezes. Kathy's aunt, a nun, tries to visit but can't stand to be inside and is also violently ill on her way home. Loudly violently ill. Another neighbor drops by for like half a second, but when Kathy goes to answer the phone, he skedaddles. George begins to be more sullen and angry over the perceived cold in the house and obsesses with splitting logs and keeping the fireplace stoked. He's snapping at Kathy. He gets grumpy when their bit of sexy time is interrupted by the little girl because of a nightmare. Before Kathy's brother's wedding one night, $1,500 to be used for the cater inexplicably goes missing in the house. George covers it with a check and they leave the reception early because he's really feeling bad. Meanwhile, at the house, the babysitter watching Amy for the evening, because it's Amy in the movie, not Missy. Anyways, this babysitter, complete with headgear, is locked inside a bedroom closet by an unseen force. This is one of the scariest parts of the movie. She's in there banging away, begging to let be let out, and the little girl is literally just sitting on the bed, listening to her cry, and the closet light goes out. Boy. George and Kathy get home, rescue the babysitter. There's no lock on the door at all, and the little girl Amy's like, oh, well, I couldn't let her out. Jody wouldn't let me. George's land surveying business begins to suffer from his lack of attendance, and his partner Jeff grows concerned. Jeff and his wife show up at the house, but George is super sullen and grumpy and really won't talk business. Jeff's wife won't even get out of the car. The house bothers her so much. Apparently, Jody is kind of a dick spirit. 
When her brothers are pestering her, suddenly a window slams shut on the hand of one of the brothers, honestly couldn't tell them apart, and then the window can't be opened. The boy's hand is fine, but it does necessitate a trip to the emergency room. Speaking of Jody, Kathy finds Amy talking to someone in her room alone, and Amy tells her Jody went out the window, and then Kathy catches a glimpse of two red swine-like eyes outside the second-story bedroom window. The family dog, Harry, by the way, is obsessing over a secret room in the basement. The priest is having a heck of a time. He has been really ill. He can't phone the house. He convinces another younger priest to drive him back to the house, but they're in a very odd car accident when the hood of the car flies up at them, and then a fly lands on the window. It's obviously a warning. Throughout the strange incidents, Kathy observes George persistent waking up at 3.15 a.m., feeling he must go check on the boathouse. She also has nightmares in which she's given details about the killings of the home's prior family, and one nightmare where George kills Amy with an axe. The priest is trying to get other priests to help, but they tell him he's being crazy. They blame his secular book learning and dismiss his feelings that there is something actually demonic going on in the house. They suggest he take a vacation. Oh, and, okay, so there's this local police sergeant. He gets called to the house when the doors all get mysteriously busted from the inside in the middle of the night. This scene is important because, A, we get to see George in his tidy whities and B, because George is super dickish to the cops who are trying to help, and the Sarge, who was there on the scene on the night of the Defoe murders, decides to take a personal interest in the house, and for the next hour or so of the movie is seen just chilling in his car, watching the house and the random people who go in and out. It's like the world's longest stakeout. The priest is mad at his superiors and holds a mass on his own with, with the help of that younger priest to try to remote bless the house slash pray for divine intervention. And, well, either he goes mad and starts seeing things or, or the statues in the chapel crumble and start to act up and, well, the upshot is that the priest is now blind. George does some research, including stealing a book from a library, for some reason, and then he runs into Jeff in a bar because, and Jeff is pissed because the business is going down the tubes. Jeff offers to babysit the kids with his wife so that George and Kathy can have a break. The wife goes along with this because she's more fascinated by the house than scared now. They head back to the house where they find the dog going absolutely berserk in the basement. Jeff's wife, Carol, suddenly grabs an axe and bangs through the wall down there to reveal that hidden creepy room and a creepy face. Is it Defoe? It appears on the wall. Carolyn, in terror, shrieks that they have found the passage to hell. Only her voice now sounds like the priest's voice. So now it's Kathy's turn to do research. She tries to talk to the priest, but is sent away. Sarge goes to visit the priest, who's pretty much a shell of a man sitting in a bench, blinded, refusing to interact with anyone. Sarge doesn't actually talk to the priest, but the young priest tells him that the old priest is sick, there's nothing to be done. This concludes all priest and sergeant-related plot points. Anyways, Kathy goes to a library, I guess, and looks at old newspapers to read about the murders. She finds a photo of George DeFeo. No, wait. It's Roland DeFeo. No, wait, it's George. No, it's Roland. Oh my god, they look like the same person. She races home. It is dark. It is a dark and stormy night, in fact, and George is out there messing around in the boathouse again, and then he sees this creepy pig visage in Amy's window. He runs in with his axe to either save her or kill her right as Kathy gets home. She sees him running in with the axe and is understandably freaked out. They collide, and she doesn't look like herself. She's an aged woman. But then, wham, she is herself again, and somehow this has broken the spell of George, and uh, he's out of his possessive stupor. They grab the kids and try to run, but now the walls are bleeding and the stairs are a slip and slide, and the door won't open. Oh, well, okay, now it does. Into the van. Do we have the keys? Uh, yes, yes, there they are, thank God. Okay, we have the keys, let's drive. They get down the block, and the kids are, like, freaking out because the dog is still back there. George is fully back. It's being nice guy, George, and he goes back for the dog, which involves going back down into that creepy-ass basement, falling through the stairs and into a hidden well full of blood. Eventually, he crawls out of the well with the help of the dog, and then a blood-soaked George and dog make it out of the basement. 
Again, the door won't open, but this time George breaks a window and joins his family in the van. They drive away. The credits tell us they never went back. The end. Bob Villa would have hated this house. Just a real renovation nightmare. La, la, la. Okay. So, when there's an adaptation of a book into a movie, they have to make choices. They have to be like, we're going to rename the children for some reason because we don't want them to be named Missy anymore. We want them to be named Amy. Maybe Amy, maybe Amy's a better name for a little girl. I don't know. Um, sometimes they make big changes. Sometimes they make little changes. But usually and hopefully and ideally, the changes that they make still reflects the themes of the original source material. In this case, the original source material being the ghost story slash book. So I thought you could start with some themes because normally you do a whole commentary bit and then I can interject because I like to do that um, with how those things might be reflected in the changes. She does like to interject. It's true. Yes, they listen. They know. Yeah, that sounds like a really good way to approach this. So for anybody who's not familiar with this particular story, one thing to understand is that it was presented as a true story. Both the book and the film based on the book uh, presented it as a true story. And to this day, most people who have heard of it believe that it is a true story, or if they don't believe in ghosts, they at least believe it was passed off as a true story because, well, it was. What's interesting is that when the story was at the height of its popularity in the late 70s, it was shown pretty conclusively to be a hoax. I bring that up because I think the fact that so few people seem to realize it's a hoax, despite the fact that it was exposed as one early on, tells us a lot about why people still tell the story and why it's popular. And to be clear, I'm not saying it's a hoax because I'm the big bad skeptic who says these things. Although he is. The fact of the matter is, specific details reported in the book, including things like damage to the house, weather events that are important to the story, including some massive storms, uh, and the actions of police officers, were shown by later investigators to just simply not be true, to be exaggerated, or to never have happened. There were also a lot of lawsuits pertaining to this story. William Weber, who was uh, Ronald DeFeo's defense attorney, and some of his compatriots sued the Lutzes, and the Lutzes sued them. It was a whole thing. Father Pecoraro, which is the real name of the priest who is called Father Mancuso in the book and Father Delaney in the film, also sued due to his portrayal. And in an episode of the show In Search Of, he openly disputed some elements of the story, but he did confirm others. Finally, in September 1979, in an issue of People magazine, William Weber confessed that the haunted house story was a hoax. He said that he had met with the Lutzes and that they had concocted this story both for the purpose of providing fodder for an insanity plea for his client and also to provide a new income stream for the Lutzes, who had, you know, really taken a wash on the house. According to the Amityville FAQ message board, George Lutz has even admitted that some elements of the story, though not the entire story itself, were fabricated. And it's been interesting over the course of the last decade or so to watch as this story that in my youth was always portrayed by everybody as absolutely true and that most ghost story and paranormal enthusiasts held to be one of the best examples of a verifiably haunted house has really been looked at more critically even by people who are very strong believers in the paranormal. It's not a shock when somebody like Joe Nickel, who wrote for Skeptical Inquirer, wrote an article in 2003 about this being a hoax. But it is interesting that a paranormal investigator like Stephen Kaplan published an entire book on why he considered this story a hoax. Brian Ritchie, who is also a paranormal investigator and 
Having read his books, I can tell you very far from skeptical about anything supernatural. While he doesn't call this an outright hoax, does express some skepticism about the story. And the Encyclopedia of Ghosts and Spirits by Rosemary Ellen Guiley describes it flat out as a hoax and summarizes a lot of what I've already said. So the story's not true, and it was known to not be true as early as the 70s, and yet it became a part of the ghost folklore of the U.S. very rapidly and has just never left. I think that this story really could be described as both a, um, a product of its time, the time being the 1970s, but it also really dug into a lot of what was going on culturally in the 1970s and got cemented in. And you've got a number of different social changes, the civil rights movement, women's liberation, changes in immigration practices, and the fact that the baby boomers were coming of age, starting families, and importantly, buying houses. And this would have included George and Kathy Lutz. All of this was shifting society in some really profound, but often not really clearly understood or articulated ways. The Amityville Horror starts as a superficially socially conservative story about a young white family moving to the suburbs, but it really quickly shifts to a story about how the house with a white picket fence is really way more perilous than any of us like to think and comes with baggage that nobody wants. Like a mortgage. Yes. And home improvements. And I think it's noteworthy that you know they made actually a lot of comments about those things in both the film and the book. Mortgage and home improvements, not things you typically talk about in a scary story. Right. And I think that they did it more in the book. There was like this idea. They were like, okay, I have all these mortgages, but it's okay. We're going to buy this house. And then I won't, George, who uh, works for his father's company, he inherited a company. So he runs his own company, his own businessman, right? Okay. He's going to work from home so that he can save money on having to rent out an office space. Because uh, at one point in time, kids... At one point in time, people thought it would be cool to work from home. <laughs> they were wrong. Anyways, so like that's part of the thing, right? It's that, okay, I'm just going to my house and I'm going to run my business out of my house. It's like the quintessential American dream. And at the same time, there's, there's stuff in the book that they kind of gloss over in the movie. So there's a swimming pool, there's a boathouse, and that's convenient because uh, George and Kathy, they got themselves a boat. They got some jet skis. They got some expensive stuff. He's got a, I think he has a motorcycle. Like There's a bunch of stuff that they have, and he's a little concerned about how he's going to pay for all these things. And, um, I, you know, they make this big deal about how it was $80,000, and it's like, an amazingly good price because this house is freaking huge and it's right next to the river and blah, 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 blah. And okay, so that's great. But my mother would tell you, even if something's on sale, if it's expensive and it's out of your price range, it doesn't matter if it's on sale. It's so expensive and out of your price range. And so I think that there's an element to that. Yeah. And for comparison, I looked this up, $80,000 in uh, property value in 1975, 1976, actually translates into, depending on how you're calculating it, between three hundred and fifty dollars and $400,000 now. So depending on what part of the country you're in, that's, I mean, that's a lot of house or not a lot of house, really. Right. So, and this is, I didn't look up, maybe I should have. Did they have a thing already in the, in the late 70s where you got a discount if somebody had died in the house? I don't know about that. I'll have to look that up. Incidentally, we paid less for our house because people had died in it. Not making that up, guys. That's true. Yes, we got a hell of a deal. But we also saved up 
and were able to afford it. Uh, but, you know, that gets into another theme, which is that um, the 1970s marked the end of the post-war economic boom. You know, after World War II, America was like the one world power that really hadn't suffered. And its, you know, output was just astounding. But shifts in the late 60s and the 70s and really culminating in the 80s changed how much manufacturing jobs were available, changed the U.S. economic sector in a number of ways. And a lot of people began to experience uh, wage stagnation. Jobs began to be lost. I mean, this is around the time that Detroit goes from being this city that's really celebrated and thought of as being a fantastic place to being, you know, the urban wasteland that it's characterized as today. Probably unfairly. I know people who live in Detroit and very much like it. But, you know, worries about unemployment were common even amongst those who had jobs. The idea of investing in a house in this economic climate seems pretty daunting. And uh, there's really a very good chance that a lot of people reading this book and seeing the movie could absolutely relate to the fact that the house that you thought was going to be your dream home is actually a curse. It's the albatross around your neck. Yeah, I actually found an article that quoted Stephen King saying that this story is effectively a horror story about real estate. And that, from what I can tell, he wasn't making a joke. He was saying, that's why the story works. Yeah, I mean, a lot of times horror stories aren't really about the ghosts and stuff. They are allegories. They are metaphors for something else. And so the fact that this was a lot of house that they couldn't afford, and then the house itself was... I I mean, okay, I'm going to get into this later, but the house, it was either trying to keep them or trying to kill them. It's not completely clear, but... <clears throat> Anyways, it's definitely an abusive relationship they had with their house. And we've all been there, right? Where we get in a relationship and we think it's going to be cool and it's going to be everything we always wanted. And then it turns crappy. And then, like, maybe we try to leave. Maybe we don't try to leave. Maybe we try to leave sometimes. And, and the house hurts us. And it makes us sad. And, and also the toilets turn weird colors. You know, actually, so that's not something I thought of as a theme to this story. But... You know, in the 1970s, you got divorce rates increasing. You have people recognizing that they can get out of relationships. People stop getting married at as early an age as they once did, although they're still getting married earlier than they do nowadays, by and large. You know, it's interesting that you say that because, yeah, the house does in some ways function as a metaphor for ending up in a relationship that is abusive and that you don't feel you can get out of, mm -hmm. which kind of leads actually into another theme that I had thought of for this, which is, you know, at this point in time, you do have the increasing divorce rates. You get changes in sexual mores. I mean, the monogamous heterosexual couple is still considered to be the ideal, but this is the 70s. This is the time of key parties and things like that. You get shifts in family arrangements, and all of this made the nuclear family seem less firm than it had once seen. In this particular story, George Lutz is the second husband. He's taking on the role of the husband and stepfather, He's taking on the responsibilities of being the breadwinner for a larger family, and he's buying this new and expensive house, and he's doing all of this within a fairly short period of time. So again, this house seems to be a metaphor for other things. Um, you know, it's unsurprising that he's wary and possibly having trouble with anxiety and depression, and in the story, that manifests as a demonic entity. Right, which again, uh, because we have the, the, the possession of George, and George is the one who becomes pseudo-possessed, and he becomes all surly and mean and combative. In the book, again, because of the writing style, there's not a lot of adjectives. I'm just, I'm, here's my time. I'm going to say it now. The book was not written well. 
it was written really poorly. It was trying to be very detached and almost journalistic and at this time this happened and at this time this happened and then this happened and then this happened. But because it was so detached with no adjectives and no descriptions and everything was just told, nothing was shown, we never got feelings of things. It was it was badly written. So my point is that that George himself, his his surliness and his whatever is just kind of listed. Whereas in the movie, they go out of their way to, t to show you that he's a good guy at the beginning. The realtor, you know, sees them as this young couple and says, oh, you know, you know, are you newly married? You know, are you going to start a family? You know, and he's like, you know, oh, it's someday when you have kids. And he's like, we already have three kids, you know. So he's just announced that they are a newly married couple and they already have three kids. So it's a little, oh, oh my God. So, you know, the realtor is a little like, oh, scandalized. He's Smith. got an impishness to him. But, you know, he's like, I love my family. Like, I'm here for it. Like, I'm here. I'm in it to win it, man. And he genuinely seems to love Kathy. There's a lot of these tender moments between the two. In fact, in the movie, there's a, I was going to say there's a fucking sex scene, but that seems um, hyperbolic. There's a sex scene. <laughs> Where they fuck. Um, but As they, one does during a sex scene. <laughs> at least they try. And <laughs> they get interrupted. Which... <laughs> and then George gets all pouty about it. <laughs> which is... I'm sorry. Hilarious. Anybody who's listening who has children or life... Has, or knows of the existence <laughs> of children. Has, has probably been interrupted at some point uh, in your life during um, a coitus moment... And, I mean, I get it that then, like, the mood has changed, but you just that doesn't necessarily mean that you have to completely give up and it's just a done deal forever. I just, I don't know. It, it, that, was, that was pretty funny to me. Well, one but, of the things that you mentioned there is that he's trying to write it in this journalistic style, except for where he's not. Yes. Because there's large sections of the book that Jay Anson writes as if they were a novel, which he's trying to claim this book is not. So, like, there's points where, you know, people... This I noticed this especially with uh, Father Mancuso and other priests. will have these very lengthy conversations, complete with, like, vocal tics and phrasing to try to make the character seem individual. The sort of thing that you wouldn't see in a journalistic story because good luck collecting that kind of information. You get that out of a fictional recreation. But then? But then he goes right back to... Dateline, Amityville. Well, it's like at 2 o'clock, somebody got up from the kitchen and walked over here. At 2.15, this happened. At 3.35, she, you know, opened the door and decided to make dinner, but she wasn't feeling like it, so she didn't. Like, it just, it's so dry and and also just too many things. There's not enough emphasis. Some of the stuff that could have actually been scary is just not written in a way to make it scary, which... I mean, I know we're jumping all around here, but the movie actually made some of the things, like the, the pig. They see the pig. George sees the pig in the window from outside. And in the book, it's not scary at all. It's almost comical it, because we also have like heard a lot about George's bowel movements and about I mean, just like all these in, stupid other little details that don't actually add up to anything. But then in the movie... There was, I think there were like two or two scenes that actually were kind of scary to me. And for some reason, I mean, a pig, a pig, you guys, a pig, a pig in a window. It sounds super goofy in the movie. It was actually well done. 
I would agree it was well done in the movie. I disagree with you that it was not... There There were only a few parts of the book that I found genuinely worked as scary stories. That was one of them, actually. When I read that part, it's like, ugh, that's creepy. Oh. Um, I think it would have been less creepy if it had just been the pig thing looking out at the window. But the fact that the little girl's looking out the window and the pig creature's over her shoulder, it just worked. I, I actually found that effective. I... Uh, okay, well, your models will vary, but I didn't. In fact, I would say, as listeners to my podcast know, I don't like horror. And part of the reason I don't like horror as a genre is because I'm a scary cat. Big old scary cat. And I get these images in my head and they don't go away. And then I have nightmares. As someone who has woken me up from plenty of nightmares, I know you can attest to yep. the, the nightmare situation. Um, the book didn't did not scare me at all and they gave me no nightmares and it was frustrating and boring and long and i just wanted it to end and the movie actually because it had these images and because some of the stuff that it did was worked pretty well i actually did have nightmares the night after we watched yeah, this that's true so uh, i know we're, we're skipping so let's get back to to your yeah we'll, we'll get back to that and then we'll talk about how effective we found the various forms you know, you'd mentioned, and now I'm actually thinking about this a little more, the uh, the house being an abusive relationship with the Lutzes. Mm-hmm. And Kathy's experience is actually, at first, she feels a disembodied force give her a warm hug and seem to be treating her well. And then later on, it's beating her. Mm-hmm. And it, it, again, it really gets back to what you were just saying about this being like an abusive relationship. Yeah, and, and I mean, the other thing, too, is, you know, in, in almost anything that works, that is compelling, you have your everyman character, and George is definitely our everyman in, in a lot of ways, but I, more on that, I think, later, but specifically in terms of this, he is kind of the stand-in for, like, a conservative male guy with his conservative values, you know, I'm going to be the breadwinner, I'm going to provide for my family, but there's these shifting cultural norms, and, I mean... It's no wonder that he resonates with people, and I think their casting of James Brolin, who's, you know, incredibly popular and approachable and, like, the guy next door, was good. And the, and the casting of Margaret, Margot Kidder, you know, Lois Lane, in the Superman movies, she doesn't have the magical powers of Superman, but she is forthright, you know, and she is a kick-ass character, you know. She's profoundly interesting on her own. She doesn't need powers to be super, right? She's still compelling. And so by casting her, she's both this this great mix of this innocent, almost naive, like, you know, open kind of person. She's very approachable. She's very sweet in the movie. But at the same time, she's got like this still core. And so there are times when George is just being a complete ass to her. And her sadness in her eyes I feel like would also really resonate yeah. with people who had gone through. And we don't know anything about her first marriage in either the book or the movie. But considering what divorce was like in the 70s, it would have to be either she's divorced and it was something probably pretty bad because, you know, of a lot of places you couldn't get a no contest or irreconcilable differences at that point. Or, you know, she's a widow. And we have to remember also that there was Vietnam was going on. And, and so like this, in some ways, she had gone through stuff. So she it's subtle, but it's there that that she's been around. 
She's done some stuff. She's got that steel inside. I think that the casting was good. And I know you have something to say mm-hmm. about the PTSD. Well, so I'm setting you up for it. Babe. Yeah. So speaking of Vietnam, in the book, they frequently mentioned that George Lutz had been in the Marines. From what I can tell, that's absolutely true. Unlike a lot of stories that you would be written from the 80s onward where, oh, they were in the Marines. That makes them tough. So they're now our heroes. That's not the way it's treated here with good reason. Uh, somebody of George Lutz's age, it would have been very common for them to have been in the military because of the Korea War and the Vietnam War. And although they never mentioned George having been in Vietnam, and I don't know what, I actually tried to look that up. I couldn't find out whether or not he ever actually had been. The fact that they do talk frequently about his time in the military, even though they don't go into any detail, really would probably have made him very relatable to a lot of the men who were coming back from Vietnam and were having to deal with post-traumatic stress disorder, but being discouraged from talking about it. You know, a lot of what he goes through in the book, the mood swings, being sullen, feeling miserable and shut off, it could tie into depression, it could tie into PTSD, it could tie into both. And I think that a lot of men or, you know, not just men, but people in general who'd uh, been in the military or were in some way associated with people who had been could relate to this guy. Kind of bridging off of that, the idea of not wanting to talk about it is is a major theme in both the book and the movie. Neither one of them really want to talk about what's going on. It It's like known, but either there's in the book it says stuff like she forgot to tell him or she you know got distracted or whatever. At the same time, they're staying up really, really late. They're getting up really like I'm not. We get so many weird details, but then we have these big chunks of time where we're, nothing's explained. So weird shit is happening. Your husband's going kind of crazy. He's not bathing. He's, he's sullen. He's all of this stuff. You find him like sitting in a room, like basically rocking back and forth. He's, he's not super responsive. He tripped over the, the lion in the movie. It's more like a dragon, but whatever. And there's bite marks on his on his ankle, like these big sores on both sides. And then nobody talks about it. It's there, and then it's gone. It's just referenced, and then away it goes. <laughs> and it's like, so this, and I don't know if that, again, I think probably very connected to what you're saying with like PTSD and also military and, and et cetera. But I think it also has to do with like a an Americanized patriarchal, like nuclear family throwback from the 50s where like we just don't talk about things we literally push things under the rug and we pretend like they don't happen because we don't want to deal with it and there's a lot of the stuff that's going on especially like abusive relationships etc where people just don't want to talk about it and so yeah our house is trying to kill us but we don't really want to talk about it and then George gets like kind of weirdly protective of the house when when there's there's a problem and the doors are all busted and the cops come in and they're kind of challenging the story because the story doesn't quite make sense and George is being a complete dick. It's an interesting scene that's played out and it's very subtle. I don't know if you caught it, but Kathy sitting on the stairs, by the way, wearing a coat for some reason instead of a robe or whatever, but whatever. So she's sitting on the stairs during this whole police interview thing. And she takes her ring off. Oh, I didn't then, catch that. And then puts it back on. And it is, it's really quick. It lays in this thing. And that's kind of what makes the sergeant get real interested in the house, especially, you know, and he starts his the longest stakeout ever. And the very next thing the sergeant sees is George and Kathy on their porch, not in the house, on the porch in front of the house. And there's, there's comfort between the two of them. So I just, I thought that was, 
it's just interesting, like mm-hmm. how it's playing with these ideas of what we talk about, what we don't talk about. And, and I know that the book, the, the movie can't show us everything, but because the book truly tried to tell us every errant thought everybody had for the 13 or 28 or however many days, because that also that number changed, it's just interesting what is said and what is not. So I think another reason why this is both a product of the 70s and why the fact that it came out in the 70s is part of how it entered our general consciousness is that uh, the 70s were really kind of a golden age for public fascination with the occult and the esoteric with what a uh, archaeologist named Jeb Card called weird shitology. You know, people were reading a lot of new age literature, a lot of paranormal books. My mother, I remember read the Seth books, which were allegedly dictated by a spirit, an ancient spirit that would possess the uh, woman who's listed as the author and allegedly contained all kinds of secret hidden wisdom. The television show In Search Of was very popular in the 70s and the early 80s. You know, so the population was primed with an interest in the supernatural and was really likely to eat up a story like this one. And that's probably the reason why Weber thought that a jury might be open to DeFeo using the supernatural in his defense. Even if you can't literally say the devil made me do it, saying the devil made me do it, you know, maybe that would let you claim insanity. Um, It's worth noting that a lot of religious conservatives saw public interest in the supernatural as a sign of satanic influence. And this is uh, shortly before Dungeons and Dragons becomes the popular target for the religious right. There's a real uh, uncertainty in the book, I noticed, and this uncertainty was in society between whether these new age ideas were good or were evil. You know, they make a big deal out of the Lutzes practicing transcendental meditation. In the book, not in the the movie. In the book, not in the movie. At some points, it's suggested that if they had kept up that practice, it would have kept the evil at bay. And at other points, Kathy actually specifically says she thinks that the fact that they had done that might be what was allowing the evil to happen. So there's a real ambiguity there. Right, because she was the lapsed Catholic. Mm -hmm. So she had chosen transcendental meditation over Catholicism. Even but then she still wanted the house blessed, so... I mean, it makes sense that it would stay so popular with, with all that you just said. And the book and movie, they're like singing to the choir by taking something already super popular and controversial in society and then making an extreme version of it. Yeah, and, and the book is, it takes every ghost story cliche, throws them at the wall and see what sticks. I mean, it, it's very, very busy to the point of at times just plain incomprehensibility. Yeah, at the time where, again, you get jaded, because it's like, oh, another weird thing. Oh, another weird thing. Oh, the... I mean, this is definitely people who have never heard the adage that less is more. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which, you know, I mean, and that's the thing, because it is, there's so much there, uh, and it's so, it seems like it's so directly reflecting that it makes it feel more like it's uh, planned than a happy coincidence. Yeah. You know what I mean? Of course, you know, like I, you know, when media or whatever holds up a mirror, it's not any surprise that the masses pause and examine because we're looking at ourselves. So whether it's George and Kathy as the proto-white American dream people, or it's the house as, as metaphor, or it's the the demonic things are here, and we're all in our society terrified currently because we live in the 70s about demonic things actually coming after us, you know, that that's going to make people be fascinated with it. It's going to hold sway. Yeah. And there's a few different reasons given in the in the book as to why the house is haunted. 
you know, they bring up this idea that the sorcerer John Ketchum might have been doing something there, which, you know, ties in with a lot of the interest in the occult and the esoteric. The DeFeo murders could be the source, although it's pretty clear that they're trying to imply that whatever is affecting the Lutz has also affected Ronald DeFeo. But this book has a, a slight twist on the highly racist built-on-an-Indian-burial-ground trope, uh, which I think, again, is in some ways rooted in the 1970s. In the book and the movie, uh, they say not that this is an Indian burial ground, but rather that the local Shinnecock peoples had put their ill and their insane at this location and barricaded them in. But they wouldn't bury the dead there because... You know, well, there's evil spirits there, so don't bury anybody there. So, Pages and Popcorn listeners probably won't know this. Ghostropology listeners will. I'm an anthropologist, okay? So, I know what I'm talking about here. Cultures across the world tend to tie illness in to supernatural ideals. And it's not as simple as, oh yes, before modern medicine, everybody thought that illness was caused by demons or ghosts or spirits or whatever. No, I, people from cultures all across the world also had naturalistic explanations for illness. It's not as simple as that. But that said, if you genuinely believed that a place was the abode of evil spirits, that is not where you would put your ill. It just doesn't make any sense from an anthropological point of view. And I mean, if you genuinely believe in evil spirits, you certainly wouldn't put them there. Archaeologically, there's no evidence that anything of the sort happened. There's no ethnographic evidence. The leaders of the local Shinnecock uh, groups have been very vocal about this being false. And frankly, I've seen this trope so many times here in California where I can look up site records and confirm that there is, in fact, no archaeological site there, no burial, no nothing, that I just don't believe it any time I hear it. With the civil rights movements that began, uh, they've been going on for quite some time, but they picked up steam in the 40s and really reached ahead in the 60s, led to things like the American Indian Movement, which did a takeover, out, a takeover of Alcatraz in 1969 that ended in 1971. You had the um, occupation of Wounded Knee, which I believe occurred in 1973, and this really forced people to look at what had happened to the Native American population since uh, European colonialism began and to see that a lot of harm had been done and people couldn't look away the way that they always had in the past because of these very prominent activist activities. So you're basically saying white guilt. Yeah, white guilt, but also, you know, kind of a forced reckoning with history, which I guess causes white guilt. Mm -hmm. On the Ghost Apology podcast, I'll get into some other ones as time goes on, but for the moment, this one works quite well. I think a lot of ghost stories can express a sense of historic guilt, a sense that something wrong happened, and now we have to suffer through the stain of it. So even though the idea that they put their ill and insane in this location would show these people to be horribly brutal, it's a really racist stereotype that does not reflect the people who actually live there at all. I think at the same time, it reflects the idea that there is this historical wrong and indignity that is still staining the landscape. And I find that rather interesting. I think that a couple things you said just triggered something in my head. And we're not going to talk about the 2005 Ryan Reynolds remake of this movie, partly because I am horror movie booked out and just refuse. Well, I, that's that's the main reason, people. <laughs> but I did 
research it for this and watched a bunch of stuff on it and read a bunch of stuff on it. And I think it's interesting. It has a different aspect of the ghosts in the house. In in its story, it is basically that Ronald DeFeo kills his family and Jody is the name of his sister, the last one that he kills. And then it's Jody's ghost who's haunting the house and causing all this havoc because she's angry. And so that idea of, of ghost stories righting a wrong or being, you know, in response to a, an ill makes, you know, kind of a sense to that. So anyways, not doing the supplemental episode of the 2005 remake. This is the special episode for the month. So there. <laughs> yeah, there's one last theme I'd like to talk about before we get into comparing the book and the film. Sure. Again, 1970s, you're post-Vietnam. The uh, Pentagon Papers have been published, which shows what a lot of the public viewed as real malfeasance on the part of military and political leadership. You've had the Watergate scandal not long back, which showed that somebody who is elected to the highest office in the land can be corrupt and venal in a way we didn't expect. Hmm. But people really began to lose faith in institutions in the 70s. A lot of people think of the government as being horribly corrupt now. But you can mark a lot of that uh, decline starting with Watergate in the 70s, starting with the Vietnam War in the 70s, starting with, again, you get back to the divorce rates and changes in real estate values and all these things that had been kind of the bulwarks of our society either began to change or fall apart or were revealed to never have been as solid as we always thought. And I think in this film, that's really represented by the Catholic Church. I, I agree, because we've talked, well, you know, you're, you're basically talking about the decline in respect for authority, or rather, the decline in the trust of authority, that the government might not have your best interests at heart. I, well, I definitely agree with you, and I think that it goes a little bit further for that. So, okay, I'm going to make a couple of connections here. We've talked about how the occult occupied the new and important aspect in pop culture, and then we have the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church is like the stand-in for old-school religion. You know, it's like the eternal struggle of good versus evil. This is the organization that has exorcist people on retainer. Like, they, they train people to fight demons. That's like part of their deal. They basically are an embodiment of that general faith in patriarchal, hierarchical systems. Like, father, you know, priest, and also family leader, father, right? Okay, so... You'd think that the church and its priests, these basically trained wizards who are there to fend off dark magic, would be the natural ally for the Lutzes, right? You know, because we got all this occult stuff in our society and now there's demons and blah, blah, blah. You know, like, and we have to think about the fact that the exorcist had come out just a couple years before and like that had this like self-sacrifice of the priest, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, no, that's actually not what happens. <laughs> what happens is... Well, so the Catholic Church basically refuses to get involved. And when Father Mancuso, or Father Delaney in the film, says that he wants to get involved and to try to help the Lutzes, they, they forbid him. Uh, in the book, Delaney himself actually is really reluctant to get involved. And the church kind of backs him up in not doing so. It's, it's a little more ambiguous in the book in some ways. One of my favorite moments in the film, just for the sheer hilarity of it all, was Father Delaney, Father Mancuso standing, having an argument with some of the senior priests, and he's explaining why he thinks 
this house is haunted. He points out that he is a trained psychotherapist. He understands mental illness. He thinks there's something different happening here. And other priests accuse him of lording his secular education over them and then essentially inform him that the only reason that he thinks there is a demonic presence, that he literally thinks Satan is at work in this house, is because he's had too much secular book learning. And I think it might be the only time in any you know, form of writing or film ever that somebody's accused someone else of thinking Satan's behind it because they had too much book learning. They basically tell him he might be crazy also. And yes, and it's it's a little surprising, right? Except that I kind of think that it's not. Okay, so because this book is and movie is all about the pushback against authority figures and you can't get much more authoritative than the church with the capital C. So it makes sense to me that like, the authority figures aren't going to be able to save them. Secondly, and also, the story needs to draw upon what's going on in society, but it also has to stop short of basically doing established stories of demons. So, like, it, it, I think if he had come in and actually did, like, an exorcism, then that would have been too close to the exorcist. So we have to make our story new because we want to make money and we want it to be new and different, okay? And then the other thing is that, okay, follow with me because this may or may not be a stretch. But I think what we have is an idea of American individualism. Okay, so we've talked already a little bit about how George is like the stand-in for like conservative values and the change of society. Okay, if George is the stand-in now for American individualism, it answers the church question as well as reflecting like the bigger reason that the book and movie were so loved by the public. Because who saves the family? Not the police. I mean, in the book, the police, like, literally just drive by once or twice, notice some weird stuff, but don't do anything. In the movie, the sergeant's got, like, he's curious, and he follows him around, but he literally does nothing. Priests, like the church, the, the, the supernatural police, no, they don't do shit. So who saves the family? Like, the father, the dad. It, the saves the family is like the dogged determination of the fa- family to save themselves and specifically of the father to save the family. So he's the guy who wins, like by sheer force of will. He's like relentless American spirit. He's the hero that the audience can see themselves being or being married to, you know, whatever. He's the everyman. He overcomes, you know, he's like the true, he overcomes evil, like true unquestionable blood from the walls kind of evil. Uh, and he saves everybody. Including the dog. <laughs> like... well, I think you may have something there for the film. I, I don't think that's true at all for the book. Because in the book, they escape the house and then discover that whatever it is has followed them. And they literally have to run away to the other side of the continent to be free Yes. Of it. Yeah. No, no, no. Definitely I'm talking about the, the, the film and why it totally stays in the American consciousness and stuff. I, I also think that if this book had not been made into a film... Nobody would care. That's possibly true, but the book was a bestseller before the film was made. Lots of things are bestsellers that we don't think about 30 years, 10 years, 5 years, 15 years, 30 years down the road. There's been a lot of bestsellers. Bestsellers, I mean, the rubric just means it sells a lot. Right. No, I get that. But I do think that this story would have really had some staying power without the film. I think the film definitely helped it, and it really propelled it into everybody. I mean, when I was I was a kid when this movie came out, uh, and I mean like four years old, and I knew about it, um, and I don't think that would have been the case without the movie. That said, 
I think that it still would have become a big part of American ghost folklore without that because it just hit all the buttons for the time. It works as a metaphor for a lot of different things that are happening in society. It becomes a very you know good vehicle for expressing a lot of ideas that people were developing about the supernatural in the 70s. I think if this book had come out 10 years later, it you know it might have been popular, it might have spawned a movie, might have done something like that. I don't think it would have been nearly as successful as it was. I think if it had come out 10 years earlier, same story. I think that because it came out when it did, it just grabbed the attention and warmed its way into our folklore in a way that it couldn't have at any other time. And I grant half of that premise. I just think that the movie put images to it. It has an amazing soundtrack. It had star power and it was able to reach more people because, I mean, let's be honest, big movie budgety things reach more people than books a lot of times. And then it gets replayed. It got syndicated pretty fast. Like it's, and then it spawned all of these franchises. Mm -hmm. So I really, I mean, I think that like the Colonel was there, but all the stuff that we're talking about, these themes and whatever. So many of them are so much more fleshed out in the movie than the book. You really have to dig and want to find them in the book where I think that they're made more apparent, easier to grasp, and like are more obvious in the movie. So that, as long as with some of the other changes that they made from book to movie, I think the movie does a better job of telling the ghost story in a lot of ways. And therefore, I think that the movie is what keeps, what like led to the staying power. So I said, I... I had the opposite experience in reading these. I think that these themes were much more developed and better expressed in the book. I mean, even you know, going back to the church and it not wanting to get involved, what they do, the church outsources this to a bunch of scientists who are going to come in and explore the paranormal. The church is completely giving up its hold on the paranormal that it once had because it's an establishment that we can no longer trust. It's even it is outsourcing its stuff to people who don't actually believe in demons or any of that, which the church is supposed to deal with. Yeah, I just found that whole part to be like, I, it was, I mean, the whole thing was really hard to buy. Yeah. But because it was trying to pretend to be real, like normally in a novel, you're like, this character's motivation suddenly changed. Like, what's the character's motivation here? Why are they doing this? Like, what's happening? And then what's the symbolicness of it? But I don't, I don't feel like you can have it both ways. I don't think you can be like, it's, you know, a true story that happens to have these amazingly perfectly synced up themes and it was like a novel. And, uh, you know what I mean? So I think that it was not well written. I, I know I've said that before, but I, I think that, that especially in that case of the church stuff, it was just yet another thing that was trying to make it seem real when, when Anson talks in his journalist voice, he's trying to make himself seem detached and real, like, I'm totally unbiased, and I'm going to give you this fact, and blah, 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 blah. And that could have worked, but it, it didn't because it was so ridiculous. Well, one of the things that I think is interesting about this is that the story is fiction. I mean, it was sold as fact, but it is fiction. And I think because of that, it's perfectly fair to judge it as a novel and to judge the film as a work of fiction. But it also sits within this context of American and world ghost folklore. And I think it works fairly well in that context. I'll agree it was poorly written. 
It, it was. I think Jay Anson, if I recall correctly, had not been a fiction writer. He'd been a writer on documentaries. Yeah, like screenwriters and stuff. Which is the thing, like, novels, you expect there to be character development, people to change, someone learns a lesson. There's, like, something that happens that has a meaning. And this, somebody gets possessed and then gets kind of unpossessed randomly. Um, people get scared and then they're continuing to be scared and then they move away. There's, there's no, there's, you can identify with them because they're normal people, except they're normal people with a fucking huge house with a swimming pool and a boathouse and jet skis they can't afford and yada, yada, yada. Um, but then they're not sympathetic. I, I was not rooting for them. I did not care by the end of this book if they escaped or not. I care that the little girl died. You know, here's a true story. I actually sent a message to a friend of ours who is really into horror stuff, and I was like, I need to know if the little girl dies. Like, animals dying in books, they, that is sad. But I have a little girl, and I need to know if this little girl dies. I just need a yes or no question. You know, that's it. And he was like, little girl lives. Okay, great. Now I can finish this book. <laughs> because at one point I was a little bit worried about that. I was pretty sure the dog was actually going to die. But then the dog doesn't die. And so then I was like oh my god, you could have killed the dog. Like, that at least would have made some emotional resonance. This book had no emotional resonance. So it, if, if, if it's a novel, which is what we're judging it, it's a horrible novel. Well, you're judging it as a novel, which is fair. That's what you do. As a piece, again, of ghost folklore, and for the pages of podcast listeners, I want to make clear, ghost folklore, as I use the term, doesn't just mean old folk stories. It means stories we currently tell each other, whether for entertainment or for some other purpose, and that we try to pass off as true. As a piece of ghost folklore, this actually worked just fine. And a lot of things that I think were absolute shortcomings of it as a novel work just fine in ghost folklore. A good example is, why is this place haunted? Well, who knows? Maybe there's spirits coming up from the well, or in the film, the well is an entrance to hell. Maybe it's because it was where the local tribe put their dead and insane. Maybe it's because this old sorcerer used to live here. Maybe all of those are tied to some other thing that just pulls weirdness into this place. In a novel, you need to kind of link those things together. Just say it's a hell mouth and be done with it, right? Rawr. But in ghost folklore, this sort of thing's very common. A place is creepy because it's creepy, and creepy things happen there. Uh, in a very similar way, you know, you get all these different things happening that really aren't connected to each other. Why the hell is there the sound of a marching band? Why does Kathy appear to age, you know, 70 years in one moment and then go back to her normal age in another? Why does Kathy's brother lose his mind? You know, you get these things that are happening that seem just completely disconnected. Again, it's like they threw everything at the wall and saw what's stuck. But if you go and you look up places that are reputed to be haunted, you know, the Borley Rectory, 50 Berkeley Square, Dudley Town out in Connecticut, um, you find these sorts of patterns appearing in the folklore. It's just, it's part of what is there. And I don't know if Jay Anson was a really bad writer who happened to luck into writing something that fit the mold of actual ghost folklore, or if he'd actually done some research and said, oh, this is how ghost folklore works. I'm going to write it like that. But it works in that way. But as a novel, it sucks. Yeah, it works being, your mileage will vary, I suppose. Because even if I feel like if you're around a campfire and you're going to tell the scary story of this house... At some point, everybody around the campfire would be like, get up and go to bed because this story fucking sucks. Well, here's the thing. When you're sitting around the campfire telling the stories, you don't tell all of it. You tell bits of it. You talk about, oh, there's this weird house and then this green stuff started oozing from the walls and people kept hearing weird noises 
And then finally they ran away in the night. You tell those elements. You kind of pick and choose the elements that you're going to tell when you're telling it. But all of these things would be attributed to the place. So you'd have kind of a stock of elements you could pull out when you're telling the campfire story. But you'd never tell the whole thing. Because, yeah, it'd be way too damn long. Yes. Agreed. Way too damn long and dumb. Kalia, by the way, does not share my enthusiasm for ghost stories. You know what? As we have established in this podcast, Kalia hates love. Kalia hates birds. Kalia hates horror. But I am a very loving person with other things. I like cookies and my daughter. Well-written literature and playing Tetris. She is, however, at the moment annoyed with her husband. (laughs) Yeah. Well, let's talk about some of the differences between the yes. book and the film. Okay, so there's some stuff that I thought really weird. And I don't think that this is a surprise, but I thought the movie was better than the book. I think the movie was better as a fictional story than the book. I would agree with you there. Okay, so there's the blood versus the slime. So in the book, there's slime on the walls. That it's... George eats. I still don't get that. Yeah. Okay, I'm sorry. Has he never seen Star Trek? Like, <laughs> or Doctor Who. Like, or, you know, anything. You don't just pick up something off a planet or, you know, that's oozing out of your walls and eat it. That's like how you, like, that's how you get possessed or that's how you die or that's that's how you get sucked into a portal or something. Like, it's just bad news bears, man. If I may, dear listeners, should you ever find slime, inexplicable blood, ectoplasm, or any other such substance... Do not eat it. The more you know. Yes. Okay. But green slime visually could have been fine. But I think blood was way better. And one of the most, like, okay, even before I read this book or saw this movie, because I only had this vague idea that there was a haunted house that had this name. Again, I'm not saying it. I'm not saying the word anymore. But like the place that shall not be named by my mouth. Amityville. That place. You know, growing up, I knew that this there was like some kind of a ghost story. That's it. I didn't know. But I knew about the bleeding walls. That's like the only thing I think that I knew about this. Well, and the bleeding walls would become a cliche in horror stories. Right. Yeah. So, like, cool. Props to them. Mm-hmm. That, I mean, new thing and also very, you know, good. I did think, so this is kind of cool, like... Because the movie had elements, like elements that you don't normally see in movies. You see in books, and then they have to leave them out because of other stuff. But this movie left a whole bunch of shit out that was in the book, and then highlighted other things. So early in the movie, the little boy, one of them, I cannot tell them apart, falls down the stairs. Like he slips and falls on the stairs, and like the dad has to pick him up and carry him off the stairs, like up the stairs. And then later on, as they're like leaving the house. The, the stairs are covered in blood. It's like total slip and slide territory. And they all fall down the stairs. And then in the basement, the dad falls through the same stairs the little boy fell, you know, like tripped on and stuff. And so it was like a little nice piece of foreshadowing. It came in threes because that's what we like in literary stuff. It, it worked. And I'm sorry, but going downstairs in the dark is fucking scary. <laughs> like we can all agree. Like that is when we fall. Although unless you're me and you fall sometimes when you're going up a flight of stairs. That, that has also happened. My point is that stairs are scary. And this worked well for me. The blood on the stairs. So yes, there. That. Yeah, and I, the film did what a lot of films do, and it compressed a lot of things from the book, so that, um, you know, the the girlfriend, and in the film, I wasn't sure if it was the girlfriend or wife of George's wow. associate, yeah. is psychic. You know, she has a lot more to do in the book, whereas in the film, 
She shows up at the house, wants to leave immediately, and then later can't wait to get into the house. Weird. And she discovers the red room in the basement. Well, she gets possessed, and she like starts yelling with the priest's voice and stuff. Which happened in the book as well. But that's, that's, a, that's a compelling thing. Okay, mm-hmm. something else that really worked in this movie. I've already mentioned that the soundtrack was really cool. And it was. It was super, super scary. But also, the editing. And editing in film is either when you notice it because it's really bad... Or you notice it because it's really good. I noticed it because it was really good. So there was a whole bunch of shots in this film that were taken from far away through windows watching the family. So like from really early on, we get the sense that something or someone is watching the family. And we are the viewers. We are that entity. We're seeing them move in. We're seeing them kind of from afar. The angles that we watch them from are different we're watching them from places on the property through windows and of course there's like all the shots of the windows and they're called pumpkin eye windows like i don't know whatever if you hear the word amityville and you immediately think of a house with two windows that look like eyes you know the windows we're talking about right and so there's a lot of like shots of those with like lights coming through and lights not coming through and like all sorts of stuff but i found more compelling was the movement of the camera in a lot of places and there are these like these long drawn out movements of the camera as, as it's setting the tone and another thing with editing and it's borderline whether it works for you or not but when they're walking through the house and they're getting their their initial tour with the realtor as they're walking in all the rooms it's intercut with the scenes of the grisly murders that we've seen earlier and those murders they were not overly graphic they were graphic enough to be really scary like there's a gun you see a lot of the gun you see blood you see a lamp falling you see you know some stuff but it's very shocking and when it's shown the first time it's got this backdrop of lightning so it kind of fits in and then when it's shown the second time it's intercut as they're just taking a tour of the house and so it it's reminding us the audience of what has happened like literally five minutes ago but it's also setting up this idea that the house is reliving its own trauma and george says you know houses don't have memories but we already know that that's not true this house has memories this house is remembering all the stuff that's happened in it and so that that it's it's setting that up really well just by camera angles and just by you know what they choose to do so i will say that i thought that some of the stuff in the movie was worked pretty well i i've already said that i thought that the pig in the window which sounds ridiculous when you say it and it sounds ridiculous in your head you think a pig and i don't know okay our kid is currently reading charlotte's web so there's been a lot of discussion about pigs in this house lately, but it's all Wilbur-centric. But this was not Wilbur. <laughs> this was Jody, And this was kind of freaking scary. I made Matthew back it up and like freeze frame so I could get up close to the TV and try to figure it out because it's you see it so quickly and so from far away that you don't really know. You just know that it's wrong. And I just thought it was, it was actually, it was well done. It was an example of a cheap and cheaply done special effect that was highly effective. The image in my head when I read that part of the book was much creepier than what was in the film, but I still thought that that scene in the film was effective. I agree with you there. One thing that I found myself thinking of a lot was that the pig seemed like a really good animal to have here because of this story in the Bible of Jesus chasing the demon or demons known as legion out of a man and those demons going into a herd of pigs and then drowning themselves. You know, you see imagery from this showing up in the book, Lord of the Flies, where the pig's head starts talking to one of the boys in a hallucination. 
And of course, there's lots of flies in Amityville Horror as well. More in the movie than in the book. Yeah, because the Lord... Oh my God, and so many close-ups of flies. Yeah. But, um, you know, so I think that there's a lot of stuff that has sort of a historical or literary resonance that you may or may not as an individual bring to it, but I think is culturally there to be mined. Yeah. Again, though, I think that they just did a better job of pulling those things out in the movie. And one of the big changes they made in the movie that I really liked was the inclusion of the babysitter. Like, that scene was freaking scary. Yeah. It's her getting locked in a closet. I don't know about you. Have you ever been locked in a closet? Yep. Being locked in a closet is no fun. Being locked in a closet is, is hella scary. Being locked anywhere is hella scary. But, like, okay, so the camera angle, too, again, it's from the point of view of the door, and it's, like, looking at her, and she's, you know, banging on the door, and then behind her is the light, and it's kind of swinging, and you just know that light is about to go off, and you know it's going to get 7,000 times scarier once the light goes off, and it does. And it's scary. And she's super traumatized. <laughs> and the little girl is just like sitting there. And I don't know what it is. And who in our world decided that little girls are creepier than little boys. But it's true. And little little girls just sitting in a room can just be so creepy. I don't. It's like this. In, it's like a weird inverse psychological thing about like an innocent little girl. But then... It's even more sacrilegious and wrong when there's something evil in a little girl. I don't, and that's very sexist, I'm sure. I know. I'm, anyways, so I just thought that the babysitter scene was a, was a good addition. Yeah, you know, I remember when our daughter was about a year and a half old, there was one night where we heard her crying. And we went into her room, and she was sitting on her little toddler bed, facing the wall, crying. And, you know... I, I picked her up and I cuddled her and I got her to calm down and put her back to bed. She went to sleep. But I remember I came in and I said she was staring at the wall crying. And you and I both had this sort of shudder. Because <laughs> there's just something creepy about that. It is. Our daughter, by the way, too, also uh, has an active, creepy-ass imagination. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so she does. That's, that's always fun. I think more fun for me than for you. Yeah, for sure. Okay, so then we also had blind priest versus smelly priest. It, it says in my notes. Oh, right. So in in both <laughs> stories, he does what they describe as a votive mass, which is where you hold a mass for a particular purpose, and it's not a mass that other people attend. It's just a mass the priest performs. And you could have a votive mass to bless a house or to acknowledge the passing of somebody important, whatever it is. Yeah, so they basically can do, like, remote magic. Right. In the film, when uh, Father Delaney holds the votive mass, he is struck blind. In the book, when he does it, this smell of human feces just basically takes over his apartment when he returns to it. And at the same time, that same smell starts emanating from the creepy red room at the Lutz house. The smell of feces is often associated with Satan because of a whole lot of stories about things that happened in the crucifixion, but that's another that's another whole thing, mythological thing altogether. But anyway, anyway, I'm just saying, blind priest versus smelly priest is a better priest in my book. And then like weirdly catatonic priest is also way creepier too. And it's like, dude, this guy literally showed up, was there for like two minutes, and then never like he that's it he was hardly even in it and he got totally you know spanked by these demonic forces that apparently hold a grudge it's just 
One of the things that I thought was interesting in the book, in the film at one point, and I think it might have actually happened at two points that you see the blisters on his hands. It's really more of a focus in the book. But um, I wondered if Jay Anson was attempting to make reference to stigmata, which for anybody who doesn't know, a stigmata is the idea that certain holy people can show the signs of the crucifixion, usually in the form of markings, sores, or injuries to the palm of the hand and to the bottom of the foot. A.K.A. Patricia Arquette. She's in a movie called Stigmata. Oh, I didn't know that. like, blessed or whatever. Yeah. Well, there you go. It's a thing. Anyways, yeah. Okay, lots of priesty stuff. But it was interesting in the movie, though. They played with your perception because when he's doing that votive mask and the statues are all crumbling and, like, dust is falling on him... The young priest who looks like a combination between a young Mark Hamill and a young Jack Black, weirdly, is... That is exactly the right <laughs> description. Is literally just, like, standing there watching, and it's really hard to tell if things are actually crumbling and falling or not, because he doesn't... He never says, holy crap, things are crumbling and falling, but he also doesn't say, dude, what's wrong with you? <laughs> so, it's... But then, and then at the end, like there's no crumblies on the ground. What would you call that? Not crumblies. But when they show the statue again a few moments later, it's in one piece. It's not. It's not a flub. They're clearly showing that the statue is back in one piece. That's intentional. Yeah. So there's this this mix of well, maybe the priest is kind of crazy pants, except that then he's blind. So I don't know. Again, that was scary. it's that part it's not overly scary but it is scarier i don't know i mean i'm gonna bring my own baggage it is scarier to me to be suddenly struck blind than to have my bedroom smell like shit i think that because of the mythological ties to the smell both worked perfectly fine for me but i i get where you would find one scarier than the other you're talking about it messing with perception. At the end of the film, I don't know if they were trying to mess with our perception or if they were just not sure what they were doing. But throughout the film, George is chopping logs. He's sharpening his axe. You would mentioned earlier that you thought it was weird that in the film, Catherine goes outside wearing a coat instead of a robe. And well, that's because they're on Long Island and it's the winter. It's fucking cold. She's inside. It's when the cops come. So they okay. get up in the middle of the night to investigate something. That, that, I, I was going to try to get into something else. I'm but, just saying that I have a reason for finding that as flawed, but okay. go ahead. Anyway, in the book, the fact that it's so cold is a major part of the plot. In the film, it looks like it was probably filmed in the spring or maybe even the summer, and then they just said it was December when there's no actual signs of it being the winter in Long Island where it snows. I've never been to Long Island. I can't speak for the snow, but it does seem like it should have been colder. Like people were not wearing gloves outside. They had scarves on. So throughout this, George is chopping logs because he needs to have them to have the fire so that he will no longer be cold. And he becomes obsessed with the logs and they show him lovingly sharpening his axe. So towards the end of the film, when all sorts of freaky stuff's happening in the house and the kids are terrified, George is out in the boathouse for some reason we're never shown why or what he was doing there it feels like something got edited out of the movie and then he goes in and he's got his axe that he's you know been lovingly sharpening he's walking to the house a little earlier as seen earlier we saw him digging a hole in the yard for no apparent reason and then he goes into the house with the axe 
And the way that it's filmed, it makes it look like he's preparing to kill a family. And that may have been the intention. But then the way that they actually play the scene out, it looks more like he's going in to try to do battle with the demons. And the family almost gets caught in the crossfire. And once he realizes the family's in danger, he gets them out. So they try to make it look like he's going crazy and then make it look like he's not. And it's not really clear what the hell they were trying to do. Isn't that when he sees the pig? In her room? Yeah. And then that, he goes, yeah, so he sees the pig in her room, and then he goes running in with the axe. So, but before he sees the pig, he's lovingly sharpening okay. the axes, he's digging mysterious holes, he's out in the boathouse. Yes, know. all of that. What I'm saying is that, that like that's the, that's the added element. is isn't just that he goes into the house, and you're like, oh, God, you know, what's he doing? Like, it literally looks like you can't tell if he's going to go save the kid from the freaking pig, or he's going in there to kill the pig. And then, of course, that's what... Kathy sees she sees him running in with the axe and she assumes the worst and then somehow when she ages up weirdly and gets in front of him and he hits her and like then her face is all old that breaks his spell and then George is not possessed anymore after that if he ever was possessed because again it's not clear yeah it's yeah and I and the axe stuff was was in the movie and much less so in the book But, you know, again, before he sees the pig, he's out in the boathouse, he's digging a hole. And you're just kind of left thinking, if he'd been digging the hole and going to the boathouse and then walked into the house and hadn't seen the pig, and then the thing with Kathy aging snapped him out of it, that would have made narrative sense. It would have been clear what was going on. But because he's doing all these creepy things, and then he sees the pig, and then he goes in, you know, is he going in to kill the family? Is he going in to save the family? And it's not like they're doing it with an ambiguity that works, because you can do that in horror fiction pretty well. Instead, it seems like the filmmakers just couldn't make up their minds as to what was going on, so they just said, yeah, we'll have him do a bunch of creepy stuff like he's going to kill a family, and then we'll have him act like he's going to protect the family, because who the hell cares? Yes. Also, a big change, the levitation and the burns. Mm, Yeah, which I think would have looked pretty goofy on film, so it's probably why they didn't put it in. I mean... Yes, I'm glad. I'm glad they didn't have any levitation as as uh, floating up and and around and all of that stuff. The burns might have been interesting. They did a little bit with her, she has marks on her face, but then she goes and looks at one of those 1970s weird ass mirrors where there's all those etchings. So like you couldn't really even tell what was going on on her face, and then it was like gone the next day. And that was like not early on, but it wasn't late in the movie either. And I'm like, why would you not go to a doctor? Like I just mm-hmm. these people's motivations made no sense. And that's actually a place where I think the move the book actually worked a little better was that it was very clear that the house was working on their psyches and was you know, making them reluctant to leave. Whereas in the film, that was a bit more ambiguous. And I think if I, having read the book and then watched the film, I got that that's what was going on in the film. But I think that if I hadn't read the book first, I would have been thinking, why the hell doesn't she go see a dermatologist? I don't know. Because the book would say stuff like, ah, she was going to do this, but then she didn't feel like it. She suddenly realized she hadn't bought any presents for the Christmas. But, you know, that's okay. She didn't really feel like it It was time to make dinner. I guess they're all going to eat hot dogs or whatever. Um, And I just... Because we didn't get any character development or to know what kind of person Kathy was beforehand, it was hard to really get it. I I, I know what it was trying to do, but I don't know. I've, I've said it. I don't need to say it again. So, I don't know. Those are like the things, really, that worked for me in terms of the adaptation. I'm glad that they left a bunch of stuff out. Less is more. So, should we wrap this up? So, Matthew, was this book and movie worth your time?
if you're into ghost stories and you're into, you know, kind of the modern mythology of ghosts and the supernatural, read the book. It is worth reading to see how it fits into this, these broader patterns and to get some stories that you can use to creep people out next time you're around a campfire. That said, I wouldn't call it pleasure reading. Uh, the film, I thought, was better. Um, that said... It was a more effective ghost story movie than, frankly, most ghost story movies, because most ghost story movies suck. However, the year after this came out, a movie called The Changeling came out, which was so much better. So if you ever think you might want to watch Amityville Horror, go watch The Changeling instead. It's much, much creepier. What about you? Okay, so my main problem with both of them, I think it's like I said, is that there's there's nothing there there. We watched two hours of people getting freaked out and dismayed and frustrated and scared. And we asked ourselves, what? Why? And I know that this is like a horror thing where there's not usually resolution or falling action. You have your climax and then the movie ends. And I personally hate that. So this book did not do it for me. The book was so badly written. And the movie really didn't do it for me except it was scary at some parts it wasn't scary in other parts i don't know if it would be scary to other people you were like it's gonna be cheese ball blah 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 and then i'm watching and i'm like i don't know if all of this is working on me because i have an overactive imagination and you know i'm prone to nightmares so is it worth your time gentle viewer gentle reader gentle person who's listening i would say if you're like really jonesing for a ghost story and you want to get all nostalgic watch the movie it is like a cultural touchstone but i i mean i honestly cannot recommend anybody read this book this book is so badly written that even if the story is good and let's be honest i have another podcast on my feed which where there's a book with a really great story that suffers from some bad writing but the story is so good and so interesting and the writing sins are forgivable. But in this case, this book, no. You know, there's one last thing I'd like to say, actually, because you mentioned that I'd said the movie would be cheeseball and it really wasn't. It was very 70s, but it was, you know, effective 70s. It was more along the lines of The Omen than, you know, some of the other things I've watched. I have a great love for bad movies. One of the reasons for this is this movie suffered from something that a lot of stuff that came out in the 70s and 80s did, which was you had a first film that's pretty good. This wasn't nearly as good as like Rocky or Jaws, but it was the same basic phenomenon where the first film was actually pretty decent. And then with each subsequent sequel, it got dumber and dumber and dumber. And when I was a kid, my sister watched all of the Amityville movies that were out at that time. And I thought that I had seen the original Amityville horror, and I didn't realize until we were watching it that I hadn't. I'd seen the sequels, which were cheeseball and really stupid. So that's actually what I was expecting when we sat down to watch the movie, and that's not what the movie was. That's our episode. Have you watched this movie? Have you read this book? Do you agree with our assertions? Are there burning questions we didn't answer? Well, guess what? There's a shit ton of information about these on the internet. 
So <laughs> we didn't really get into a lot of the trivia stuff about the making of the movie and whatnot because it is just so well documented all over the place. So there is going to be a lot of show notes. Hey, this was fun, Matthew. Mm-hmm. Hopefully so, it'll be fun for the listeners. <laughs> so where can people uh, find your stuff, man? If you wish to contact me or you have a tale that you would like to hear discussed on Ghostthropology, you may contact me at ghostthropology at gmail.com. That is G-H-O-S-T-H-R-O-P-O-L-O-G-Y at gmail.com. I like your official podcast voice. (laughs) You know, you can always email me at pagesandpopcornpodcasts at gmail.com, and you can find out more information about both of these shows at kmmamedia.com. Also, we would like to uh, encourage our patrons. This is the type of uh, fun supplemental episode that our patrons get, and I'm working for Pages and Popcorn. We will have a special supplemental episode one a month at the $5 level. You get all the episodes early, you get the special supplemental stuff, you get access to a fun little web page that nobody else gets to see that gives you the upcoming episode information, all the supplementals that we've ever made, etc, etc. It's pretty cool. At the $1 level, you just get that episodes early, which is also very cool and also very helpful. But the best way that you can support both Pages and Popcorn Podcasts and Ghostthropology is by rating and reviewing us wherever you're listening to our podcasts and telling your friends and your family and your neighbors and that nice family that just moved down the street and that priest who's just sitting in the garden with nothing to do because he can't see and he doesn't talk to anybody. Tell them about our podcasts. Share the love. You'll be glad you did. And hopefully so will they. Happy Halloween. Happy Halloween. Why don't you try to say it? It's Amityville. Am, Amity, Am, Am, Emptyville. Empty, Amity, I'm not gonna. Amity. It's a T sound. You keep making a T sound. Well, there's a T in it, but because I have the particular accent I have, when I have a T in that place you in the word, it. I tend to pronounce it as a D. Amity. Amityville. Amity. Amityville Hill. Technically, it's Amityville, if we're being all posh, but that's not who I am. Okay. So, I have called it Ambioticville, MTVville, Amadividividu. Yo, MTV Raps. (laughs) Yo, MTV Haunts. Chipotable. (laughs) The Amityville Whore. Amityville Whore. The Amityville. Amityville. Yeah, okay. Amityville. Wait. Amityville. At the Anvil Horror. <laughs> the Anvil Horror. That is correct. We will be speaking tonight of the Anvil Horror. In my... The in Wiley my, Coyote story. In my notes, I call it Amiho. <laughs> it doesn't help that in your notes you put an N right after the M, too, which is probably adding to the confusion. Amniho. <laughs>